I'd like to share a few reflections on the theme of metta. The talk tonight is called Opening Our Heart to Love. Some people have the good fortune to naturally radiate feelings of love, of kindness, of compassion. And I think we can all think of beings we all know, like Gandhi, Deepama, who has been mentioned many times as being one of our teachers, the Dalai Lama, or even our own teachers. And even some ordinary beings hold within themselves the expression of love and wisdom. This love often emerges from a space of depth of openness when faced with great suffering. I have an example of this when about 20 years ago, my husband, who was in Dharamsala, learning Tibetan and also studying Buddhism, we had the great fortune to meet then the Dalai Lama personally and had the great gift to have a private audience. And the meaning for us to go to see him was to know, since my husband was a Tibetan, he was guiding people in Tibet, he was wanting to know if it was a good idea to bring tourists into Tibet, into China. And so we had this audience and the Dalai Lama very movingly, I would say, just shared his own way out of Tibet and how he flew out of his own home. And with really great tears in his eyes, he was really moved, yet he had the spaciousness to hold his tears. And in his eyes, you could see the feeling, you could feel how he was hurt, yet there was the spaciousness of love. And he was just saying to us, you know, don't throw anyone out of your heart. Of course you should go to Tibet. People should meet the Tibetans. And it's important that you do go because there's a connection. There is no way that one can live separated from one another, even if it hurts. And he was so touching in that moment when he shared this with us because in his own suffering, you could feel that there was that tenderness of love for the Chinese people. There was absolutely no sense of harm there towards them. And at the end of the meeting, it was so fantastic because you feel that you're so close to him, actually. He is so open that you really feel the most important person in the world when you're there with him. And as we walked out, you know, he said goodbye to us, and he said, oh, wait a minute, I think you want to take a picture, don't you? You want a picture of me <laughs> with you? <laughs> and then I said, yes, it would be wonderful, but we don't have a camera. Oh, come tomorrow, I have plenty of meetings, but you can sneak in, to in between two meetings just to take a picture. This. I mean, he wasn't a star then, you know. Twenty years ago, the Dalai Lama was a pretty ordinary being for most of the world, but it was so touching. We went the next day, and here he was, you know, really, as he had said, propped to come out, and he really held us very, very nicely, took the picture, and in his hands, he had hidden behind his back 
two small statues, two small Buddha statues in a kata. And he said, here is our gift for you. This is the gift that I offer you, just so that you can tell the Tibetans that the Dalai Lama is well and is really fortunate. And he was so happy to hear stories from Tibet. So such an inspiring being. He was really embodying the notion of metta, of love, of kindness. And no separation whatsoever for anyone. The Buddha said that the greatest protection in all the world is loving kindness. And that's exactly what the Dalai Lama said, you know. You need to protect yourself because if you don't protect yourself, then you will feel the harm within your hearts. But this was not the case. He had practiced compassion and love so much and so deeply that he could really feel within himself in the moment that he needed to find himself being facing suffering, he could use it. So metta can be a refuge and a very great one. When faced with pain, some people naturally incline to love, to accept, to open. There's the natural inclination of the heart and mind to go there. For others, it's more difficult because it's just the idea of having to open to the pain that is so painful. And it just seems so unreachable. In my very early years of practice, I would really resist the practice of metta. I just didn't want to do it. It was just so difficult to go there. And I knew that my only way was to hold my pain. I couldn't surrender to anything else. It was so difficult to let go. And I was very fortunate because when my teacher said, yeah, you should really do metta, you know, you really need it. I said, no, I won't do metta. And then he said, well, what you can try is you can just try to begin to hold your heart as if it were a newborn baby. And I said, well, yeah, I could try that. That I'm, I'm willing to try. And it was so sweet because imagining my heart as being a newborn baby, you can imagine how a mother takes care of her newborn baby. And here I was holding my heart as if it were really pure, really completely newly born. It allowed me to feel, to just be in touch with what was happening. I must say that the teacher was very clever because this was metta. Later on, I really noticed that there was no other (laughs) possibility than, than not being metta. But he had found a way, you know, just to show me the path so that I could take in just what I needed. So you may think about it if you have some resistance about metta practice, you know, just taking care of our heart as if it were a newborn baby. I think that for many of us, the idea of loving-kindness, born from our conceptual mind, is really a feeling that we have that it is unnatural and that it's a fabricated practice that will only bring fake love 
It's just like it feels repeating all these phrases. It just feels so fake. And yet, it's just the opposite. When we surrender to the practice, when we begin to take care of our wounds, of our heart and mind, we discover in a way that we have never done before the truth of who we are. But it needs that, that, that move from the idea of what the practice is to really practicing, to being able to do it. It is said that the nature of our heart and mind is pure and radiant, that it shines like the sun, that its quality, main quality, is loving-kindness. It's pure. And when metta is really here in a way that is genuine, then it cannot be associated with unwholesome states, meaning that there cannot be metta and hindrances. The hindrances cannot come in because the metta is so strong that it pushes away all of the hindrances, whatever they are. That is why metta is said to be one of the most beautiful qualities, the states of the mind that is called the beautiful state of mind. You probably know, but metta is a Pali word, which has many, many meanings, in fact. And all of them, all of these meanings, really have a sense of manifesting the pure state of mind. It's described as being the generosity of the heart. It's described as being the basic goodness or the basic goodwill. And also as being the friend. And I like that, that piece of being the friend because we always need a friend. And when we can become our own friends just by using the practice in a skillful way, well, I think we can really become more gentle with ourselves. And from that gentleness, there can be care for the world, for other beings. The metta is described just as the gentle rain that touches one's skin when it's been too hot from the sun. That really sweet, gentle rain, evening rain, that touches very softly the skin when it's been burned by the sun. So, genuine metta, in fact, is a state of serenity. It's a state of tranquility. It's really abiding in calm, abiding in serenity. And it's said to be the true heart's release in that way. When we think of metta, I don't think we have this idea if we haven't really understood the practice well. Because when we think of metta, what we expect is to find something special, you know, this great feeling of love, of passion, which is not at all what the state of metta is, of being really some state of excitement, some state of extreme joy or enthusiasm, really something very intense. And when metta is there, it's not at all that type of sensitivity, not at all. It's just a simple 
serenity, simple calm, abiding in a way that we can have a mind then that is receptive, that is soft, that is relaxed, that is pliable, and that can take in whatever is appearing. And in that way, it shows itself by being less reactive, less moving, less judgmental. So I think it's important to to really realize what metta truly is, because if we have another expectation, then we'll always be deceived, you know. (coughs) And when we begin to distinguish these two different states, meaning that when we have this excitement, this joy, this passion, we really need to see that this is a state that is linked with desire, that it's a state born out of wanting, rather than the state of metta, which really understands that there can be harmony with whatever presents itself. Harmony with oneself and harmony in the world. Very different mind state. A mind that is filled with peace has huge virtues, has really an immense amount of virtues. And I'd just like to share a few words of the Buddha who spoke of the virtues in practicing loving-kindness. He says, One who actively develops loving-kindness mindfully and without limit sees that their attachments wane and their bonds become one thing. If one shows kindness with a clear mind, even once for living creatures, by that one moment of kindness, one becomes wholesome, having mercy in his or her heart for all creatures. The noble person brings forth abundant goodness. It's just amazing to me the phrase that says that by one moment of kindness, one becomes wholesome. It's just so beautiful. What a powerful statement. And we each, here at least, been practicing for such a long time that we've had moments of kindness. We've had moments where we touched upon this mind state, this quality of mind and heart, which is really peaceful, which doesn't require anything else just being in the moment. But how often do we overlook that feeling? How often do we not recognize a moment of kindness that we've had in our practice or even towards other people during the retreat? When we're able to recognize the feeling within us with a kind heart and a clear mind, we really allow good karma to become reinforced, to ripen the fruit. There's a way that if we miss 
the moment. We don't recognize because we're so attached to seeing only the negative that we really miscomprehend the practice in a way that we're totally out of the, the moment. So it's important when we allow ourselves to practice and to really recognize the kindness that is ripening, to really help ourselves by noticing and then to dedicate the actions of our practice. I think the dedication of the merits or the sharing the benefit of our practice with all beings is truly an act of loving-kindness. And I usually do it at least twice a day, in the morning or and in the evening. And when I'm in practicing in retreat, after each sitting, I would just share the blessings of my practice with all beings. Whatever the practice was like, You know, even if you feel it was the worst sitting, it's just that beautiful space that you were in that you were able just to have the good intention to just look and to be there, to be present. So to share that and to ripen the fruits of good karma. As many of you know, I've sat part one (laughs) doing a metta retreat. And I really had a very difficult time at the beginning of this part one retreat because um, it was the first time I was doing a six-week metta retreat. I had not done long-term practice with metta. So I had planned this for so long that I was really looking forward to finally getting here and do six weeks of metta. There was so much expectation in my mind to really begin in a space of ease and tranquility was impossible. So I really gave myself a hard time. (laughs) It was absolutely impressive because I just was obsessed with the idea of doing everything right. Meaning that I couldn't be, I w- I couldn't be just presenting myself with, you know, this is a hindrance, okay, I'm having this desire, and yeah, just see it as desire. Now, I was so attached, so caught into the space of wanting it to be just right to do everything good, you know. And so I would even increase the amounts of phrases. You know, usually we have four. (laughs) I had about six or seven, you know, just thinking that that would help my practice. And I had not seen a teacher yet. This was really the two or three first days, but I said, okay, I'm just, you know, because they had told me, you do Vipassana until we see you. I said, no, I've done metta practice before. I can really try this. <laughs> I really wanted to do metta. And so um, I was in the state of total panic after just a few days because I was just rushing everything. It was so much restlessness. And the peak experience <laughs> was when I was doing my yogi job. 
around the tea urn. <laughs> because what happened then is that there were beings, so I was connecting, I mean, this, I didn't want a yogi job with much connection, but here I was having a yogi job with people around me that was nice with metta practice. And so I said, oh, this is really a good opportunity to practice metta, you know. So a person would be coming, getting, you know, a tea bag and some water, and I'd just, you know, say the phrases. And I was not saying one phrase that I say, do you think this person is feeling my metta? Do you think it's... (laughs) 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 And, I mean, I was just got lost so much... And there were so many people passing by. (laughs) I had to stop and notice the subversion. (laughs) Just having the state of expectation about the practice. And and then I thought, but wait a minute. How can they feel your metta if yourself you're not feeling metta? You're not at all connected with the practice. And you're just having aversion to whatever you experience, totally in a bubble, you know, totally in a bubble. But it was so interesting when someday I woke up during that yogi job that day, the third day, saying, this is not working. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think I really realized that I was disturbing my practice more than anything else because there was this the space, then I really started, you know, investigating. (laughs) And I was just in that space of seeing that my mind was really in a space that it was going to conquer the heart. There was a conquering, like a, like a, you know, very good soldier, very stiff, very, you know, wanting really harshly to do the practice the best I could. But the attitude was totally wrong. It was totally out. The, the goodwill was there. I mean, I had a good intention, but the way that it unfolded was totally upside down. And so I went to the teacher, and my first interview, and I said, um, well, just, you know, explain what had happened. And um, <laughs> the teacher said, well, why don't you just enjoy doing the practice? <laughs> You know, just enjoy saying the phrases and forget about whatever is going to happen to you. Don't expect anything. I think you're expecting too much. You're wanting too much out of this practice. And even if there's a good intention, if you're pushing yourself forward, it's just going to be counterproductive. And then I heard, enjoy. That was a, like, it was like a foreign word, you know. <laughs> I said, oh, enjoy. Oh, that, that's a good idea. You know, yeah. <laughs> enjoy my practice by just doing the practice. And I walked out and I just thought, yeah, this is what love is about. I'm practicing loving kindness and I'm not even enjoying my practice. <laughs> so afterwards, before enjoying, there was a lot of self-judgment. You know, you're not supposed to be in this space, and then self-doubt, but how did you let yourself, you know, be here, and how did, how did this all happen, and not good enough? And, of course, I mean, it just it didn't last long, just one sitting. So, okay, I'm just going to give this space to, 
to self-judgment and just to notice what is appearing and, and just notice the reactive mind. And I think that what I did, because it was very conscious and very mindful the way that I was noticing all this self-judgment, just to see that it was enable me to just let off the pressure because there had been so much pressure, so much tension built in the body during all this time especially repeating the phrases, you know, it's hard work, I mean, it's really... <laughs> and so to use seven phrases instead of four, it really built up a lot of tension in the body. <laughs> and so I just let myself, you know, just not lost at all in the reactive mind, but just mindfully noticing all the judgments, noticing how poor my practice had been. And then I said, okay, this is it, it's enough, I'm starting again. You know, I'm just going to begin again like if I had come with my bags and my suitcases this morning. And I think we learn so much from allowing ourselves to make mistakes. I mean, it was great because in a way it showed me how I needed to be humble and that humility was just so precious because it allowed the tears, it allowed the heart to open, to really, in a way, break open, because after that it was just like, ooh, <laughs> this um, flow of emotions coming in. But the three days had prepared me for an opening. So it's not that they did count at all, you know. At one moment I thought, oh no, I'm starting again this morning. But the three days of worrying and trying hard and really wanting to do it, they were there. I mean, it was not that I was starting from the beginning. So it's important to know that sometimes when we do make mistakes, quoting make mistakes because there's no mistakes <laughs> that can be made, but that we think that we're going wrong, we need to really reflect that it really serves our practice. And it's really difficult to judge. We can't judge our practice. We have no idea what is happening for us. We have no idea what depth we are right now. And I think it's so humbling just to say, yeah, I'm leaving this to the teacher, you know. I'm just doing my job here and just letting the teacher Tell me how my practice is doing. Letting myself just, you know, be held by the teachers. And it leaves in our hearts an ease then that we don't always have when we're always wondering, you know, how we're doing, how we're doing. So it it's, can be useful. This is um, a poem. Miley. My friend Miley, who's here, um, lent me this book of uh, poems. And I just fell in love with all the poems. <laughs> so I said, which one am I going to choose for tonight? And um, I had not known of this poet, William Stafford. And he's wonderful. And so I'm just going to read one of his poems. He says, Ask me. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. 
Others have come in their slow way into my thought, and some have tried to help or to hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there, hidden, and there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says, that is what I say. Isn't it beautiful? So to be able to begin again, we need to be very patient. We really need to be very patient. And it's not a patience that resembles endurance, because endurance has wanting. It's rather a softening, patience that is a relaxing of the heart and mind. And that patience allows us to understand with wisdom, with love, that everything is workable. There is no situation that is not workable. And I think that slowly, slowly, that is what we are discovering here in this time spent together. Because through the patience, there is acceptance. And there is an allowing of movement through the changes, through the conditions that come and go. Sometimes, like I did, we may freeze the practice, we may freeze the experiences. In any one moment, this can happen. And it can be that we feel stuck, but really we aren't, because the conditions change, so we are able to get unstuck. And that is really quite fantastic. I have an example (laughs) of when I was sitting in Nepal many, many years ago. It was actually my first retreat after a weekend retreat at Gaia House. I was sitting in Nepal with um, Sayadaw Upandita for a month retreat. And it was really an experience that I will never forget <laughs> because I had no idea who was Upandita Sayadaw. I had not much idea of Vipassana practice. And I had all my emotions in my suitcases, in my heart, everywhere. And it was so interesting, I mean, to be facing myself with all these emotions, all this love and yet hurt that was appearing. And the conditions, as Joseph said, I think, one night, were really difficult, really difficult. We're sleeping on the floor. I mean, I just don't want to go into that, but they were really, really hard. And I was crying from morning to evening. It was very easy. (laughs) And every time I went to report, I was just saying, you know, I'm not okay, I'm crying. And then Upandita said, 
Did you note it? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, yes, I'm noting that I'm crying. And then it would last like for a week, you know, that he was not at all giving in to some kind of loving kindness towards me. He was just, oh, so hard. And it didn't help, really. <laughs> then I just said, you know, I have to find a refuge. There's, there's no possible way. I need to find a refuge tonight or I'm going away tomorrow morning. I just can't stand it anymore. And in the middle of the sitting, it was just like 11 p.m., <laughs> I, don't know, I had this burst of emotion coming up. And what I did is I ran to his kuti, who, that was out of our building, of course. And there was a monk that was serving him, and he said, Oh, I'm sorry, you can't see Sayadaw now. <laughs> and I said, Yes, I'm seeing Sayadaw now. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I didn't take off my shoes, I didn't do my bows, and then Saido comes out of his, <laughs> what's this? And he sees me, you know, and so he's just showing the sign, yeah, let her in. And I just didn't say anything, I would just burst out crying, I just needed, you know, really, I needed a refuge. And with the sweetest voice, then, Saido said two words, he said, could cry. <laughs> and then I looked at him. I said, could cry. <laughs> and then I said, I need your help. You know? <laughs> and so he just said a phrase. You know, there was a long moment of, of silence, I must say. And then he just said one phrase. And that phrase I'll never forget, and that's why I'm sharing it for y with you tonight. He just said with the really sweetest voice, he said, If you need the, a refuge, take the lap of the Buddha to be your own refuge. Just take the lap of the Buddha to be your own refuge. And in that moment, I was just in such a state of vulnerability that it went in, you know, really, no problem. I just took it. I need a refuge, I got a refuge, you know. And it was the Buddha, and I had not thought. I mean, I wasn't yet, you know, a practitioner that bowed in front of the Buddha and had the, the time of practice to really feel what a true refuge would be in, in the Buddha. And so that devotion came much later. But from that night on, every time I would begin practicing, I would, you know, just say that phrase, take the lap of the Buddha as your own refuge. And it really helped. I mean, it changed everything because I wasn't alone. The Buddha became my friend. <laughs> just very, very openly, very sincerely, he just became my friend. One that I could trust in and one that I just needed the friend. And here, again, the Buddha was metta. It was loving-kindness. So I think it's important that we find ways, whatever it is for us, you know, that enable us to go through the practice with trust, to enable us to really 
feel what is appropriate, what you need, and not to, you know, just walk by and say, oh no, I'm strong, I don't need anything. Because sometimes we do need help. And maybe we don't look for it enough, you know. So it's important. And then in that retreat, I really listen to my heart and learn to listen to my heart. And to listen to the heart is something really radically different than, than following the heart. Because following the heart, that's what we usually do, you know. We follow all our desires. We follow what we want to do. We follow the wanting mind. But to really be able to listen, to listen inwardly, to have this sense of, yeah, I'm surrendering to this. Just being able to surrender. And when we do, it's love. It's loving kindness that just pours in through our hearts, through our pores, through our skin, through all our parts of our body. But to do this, we really need to notice and to remind ourselves of the difference between love and desire. They're very, very close. And again in this part one, you know, I was really careful to notice. Oh, wow, they're so close, love and desire. (laughs) They really are so close that it's so difficult to notice the difference until the practice really can hold us. Often we do not feel the difference because of the lack of simplicity. We're not able to experience just this moment, what it presents itself. And so we're already, you know, just inclining, reaching out for the next moment to just have this need of wanting what the next moment will bring us. And we're just missing this moment. We're just overlooking this moment. And so it happens that when we really focus on the difference between love and desire, we can notice that very simply in the reality of our life, we can just say, well, love is an offering. It's just a pure offering. Offering to ourselves, offering to other people, offering to the practice. It's the simple wish of be well, be happy, just be with whatever is appearing. That pure offering doesn't want anything back in return. It doesn't want anything in exchange of which certainly desire does. Desire offers, but it wants back. It wants in return. It just says, yeah, what am I going to get from this? You know, just like I started with. I'm giving, but hey, what am I going to get? I wonder what, you know? And it's just this. And the difference is very simple. It's this you're giving. This is the pure love, pure offering. And the desire is, you're giving, but there's this movement, you know. (laughs) And the reaching out is just so there. It's just like so sticky in the mind, even when it's very subtle. 
we can notice it. It makes a huge difference. It has nothing to do. One is offering joy, happiness, and the other one is offering pain, suffering. And I notice this over and over again. In this last retreat, I noticed that when I could just be with gentleness, with care, wishing just to be there with my words, with the person I was sending love to, everything was fine. But there was just a moment, you know, when it would change to, oh, even the wish to just be more loving, loving the person more just loving the person that I was sending loving-kindness to, just that idea of, oh, maybe, you know, that's a person I really appreciate, and why don't I just try to send a little more loving-kindness? Well, that more is desire. It's not loving-kindness anymore. Even if it's the best intention, we're out of the moment. So the word more, even if it's more loving, is associated with desire. Not enough. You know, I can't love enough this person, or I can't love enough myself. There's aversion. Exactly the opposite. Near and far enemy of metta, of loving kindness. And as soon as more and not enough are there, we're in trouble. We're really in trouble because we really need to notice. It's so quick, but it makes a huge difference. But with the practice, equanimity comes. With the practice, concentration comes. And we're able to be much more aware of the difference. And I was challenged once more when I was sending loving-kindness to the difficult person. That is a challenging piece of the metta practice, because the difficult person, you know, you're really, there's equanimity, but you don't know yet how much equanimity there is until the difficult person comes in, you know. And as soon as the image of this person came, I thought, oh, I'm going to be loving, you know. There's no reason why it should be different with this person than with the others. And yet, it was. It was not that I could not send loving kindness, but it just began to be a little more difficult, meaning that aversion arose. I needed to just be very careful to what distance I was, you know, holding the image, and there was a certain amount of openness that I could give that was acceptable for me, and certainly I had closed a little bit my heart, but it was okay, because I could hold the aversion then. And by being able to hold the aversion, it to really meet the aversion, it really switched. It just 
transformed itself like magically into suffering, just seeing the other person suffering rather than having my aversion. And when I connected with that, I really, very intuitively, the mind switched to compassion. And it was very, very beautiful in a way. I said, you know, may you be free of suffering. But that's also metta, you know. It's the foundation is metta, and the Brahma-viharas are one and all. So that, that move was really a very great moment. So when loving-kindness is present, we can love with ease, we can be relaxed. But this really requires that we pay full attention without any expectation. It allows, it's an attitude that allows really openness and acceptance, really to hold, to hold whatever presents itself. This is a poem from Rumi. It's called, Love with no object. There is a way of loving not attached to what is loved. Observe how water is with the ground, always moving toward the ocean. Though the ground tries to hold water's foot and not let it go. This is how we are with wine and beautiful food, wealth and power. Or just a dried piece of bread. We want and we get drunk with wanting. Then the headache and bitterness afterwards. Those prove that the attachment took hold and held you back. Now you proudly refuse help and you say, Oh, my love is pure. I have an intuitive union with God. I don't need anyone to show me how to be free. And yet this is not the case. A love with no object is a true love. All else, shadow without substance. Have you seen someone fall in love with his own shadow? That's what we've done. Leave partial loves and find one that is whole. Where is someone who can do that? They're so rare. Those hearts that carry the blessing and lavish it over everything. Hold out your beggar's robe and accept their generosity. Anything not coming from that will damage the cloth, like a sharp stone tearing your sincerity. Keep that intact and use clarity. Call it reason or discernment. You have within you a deciding force that knows what to receive and what to turn from. That force is the force of loving-kindness. To help us keep a genuine feeling of metta, we need to keep in mind the vision. In the Buddhist psychology, it's called the view. And the view here is just 
knowing that we're planting the seed of good intention and remembering that we're planting the seed of good intention. And it's much more important than to want to have the feeling of metta when we begin the practice. The view here is planting the seed of good intention, of goodwill, for ourselves and cultivate that even further to include all beings. And in that way we have a sense of interconnectedness. So it's important to begin and to plant the seed, to really use intention of wanting to cultivate the good. And that will enable the mind to bend towards the boundlessness, towards loving-kindness. We can have the best intention in sitting here. And it's so important that we do, so that our practice does bring fruit. We need to intend to do the best when we begin. And then we just need to drop the worry. To have that intention at the beginning of our sittings and just dropping, then just bowing to the practice and bowing to whatever is appearing. Because if we keep the sense of intention in the practice, it becomes distorted. This intention is distorted because it becomes expectation. And then there's wanting again. So really cultivate the sense of intention in the beginning and then just drop whatever intention there is to change anything. I think that the whole world suffering comes only from a place of great separation. And here we're learning to understand wisdom in serving ourselves by doing the practice, in meeting ourselves when we connect with whatever is presenting itself. We connect with our heart, with our mind, with the best wishes for ourselves, to really be able to know that when we connect, there'll be moments of happiness and peace, and there'll be moments of suffering. And the boundless heart can take it all in. It's no problem for the heart to take the suffering in. Just to be able to be one with all. I think that the power of metta is a true healing for the world. And it can touch the whole universe. And a small example of this is when I was teaching a retreat in Israel just a year ago. And we were living in this kibbutz, and a cat had just a little few kittens that were not too old. And every time at 2 o'clock in the afternoon we would be doing metta practice, one of the little kittens would come and be jumping in the room 
going through over the cushions and just came and sat on my lap. And it was so fascinating because it did that every day we had the retreat. And it would do that only when we had the metta practice at 2 o'clock. And the interconnectedness there was so beautiful because we were so touched by the little kitten. And of all evidence, that kitten was touched by the love of metta, by just the love, that pouring love that was in the room. And when it ended, it wouldn't move. You know, so all the yogis would be looking at me, what are you going to do? <laughs> we had smiles all, you know, really moved by, by this little kitten that was just hugging itself and being really so comfortable just in the lap of metta. So to have a sense of gratitude for the practice that we connect, that we can really allow ourselves to feel that profound, deep love which is pure. When that love is present, no part of ourself is left out. And I think that we can really feel the sense of beauty. The beauty that is in our hearts is just that manifestation of that pure, radiant heart. That quality of purity just comes as the hindrances and the visitors, the torments of the mind, just clear away. like to end with <clears throat> the Metta Sutta from the Buddha, which is most beautiful. <clears throat> May all living things be happy and at their ease. May they be joyous and live in safety. May all beings, whether weak or strong, in high, middle, or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far away, born or yet to be born. May all beings be happy and at their ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or ill will wish to harm another, even as a mother watches over and protects her only child. So with the boundless mind, one should cherish all living beings, radiating friendliness over the entire world, above, below, and all around, without limit. So let one cultivate a boundless goodwill toward the entire world, free from ill will or enmity, whether standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. As long as one is awake, one should be resolved in this mindfulness. This is called a sublime abiding here and now. Let's sit for just a few minutes. <clears throat> May the beneficial energies that we have accumulated through our practice be shared 
by all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. May all beings be liberated. Not an expert yet. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.